Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Kevin Brown, who is an associate professor in the Department of Policy Management at Yamanashi Prefectural University. How are you doing today, Kevin? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. The paper that we're going to be speaking about is uh, a chapter in a 2017 book, Second Language Pronunciation Assessment, uh, with the title Pronunciation and Intelligibility in Assessing Spoken Fluency. And for as long as I've known you, Kevin, you've been interested in testing and uh, these types of issues. So uh, give us an introduction. What is important to know about testing, high stakes testing? What should we as university educators know? I guess first off, uh, something that everyone should know if they're not, if they're not really aware of it is, uh, you know, testing is big business. Um, these high stakes tests, it's big business. They're all very political um, and they, they affect they affect not only our lives, but of course our students and society at large. As university educators, particularly language educators, and since we're going to be talking about English, um, English tests, um, English language educators like ourselves working, um, working in non-English speaking countries, um, how, they, how they affect us in the university is, uh, they become the or the the outcomes, the scores of these tests become something of like a gold standard that people who aren't language educators look to to determine the ability of students um, and also our ability as teachers and uh, the success or failure of language departments, um, even when you know, language curriculums, language departments are not really built around these tests. Um, and oftentimes educators pay them very little mind when making curriculum decisions. These tests are very much uh, or very often how others, how outsiders uh, view what we do and our success. Um, so they're quite important. It's really a, it's really a good idea for all university educators to um, familiarize themselves with the tests, um, particularly, you know, what they test, how they test, and then, of course, help their students um, understand the tests as well. Uh, that way, everyone can make a good can make a good showing in the end. <laughs> and when we're talking about high stakes testing, we're talking about uh, TOEIC, TOEFL, IELTS. Are there any other big names that we should be talking about? Those are the biggest ones. They're the ones that right now uh, function as sort of gatekeepers to higher education for a study abroad with IELTS and TOEFL, um, TOEIC with uh, employment. Those are, I think, the, you know, currently the most important ones. And specifically, this paper is looking at spoken fluency and the, the speaking section of the test. And you note uh, on the first page uh, that it's oftentimes we're judging fluency to a kind of native standard, whatever that may mean in that context. Can you uh, give us some details on how 
these tests have been judging uh, native-like fluency up to now. Oh, okay. Well, I should I should clarify that um, rather than up to now, I would say up to up to perhaps a couple of, a couple of years ago. Um, I would like to take I would like to take some credit in um, in in the fact that there have been some changes since since the publication of this article and since I uh, I, I completed my larger study, which was the focus of my uh, dis my doctoral thesis. We're going to focus on pronunciation uh, as opposed and, and and separate from other aspects of uh, of, of language production. Um, and how it was how it was it was scored for a great many years for a great many years the native speaker was the it was the sort of gold standard um, but of course a few things happened number one um, English is is spoken as a first language in a number of countries so you and I come from different different countries and, and we speak differently. So it didn't take too long. It didn't take too long for the idea of how is the native speaker defined. And Davies focused, um, he focused a lot of, of research on that with the native speaker. Um, and so immediately became this, or, or not immediately, but something that 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 came from all of this trying to determine what is the English native speaker was this idea that there, there is no single model, right? There's no single model. And so uh, the next point that came up was, uh, you know, as accents being a part of people's identity um, and recognized as, you know, as a part of their identity that non-native speakers were no longer expected to sound like native speakers. So, in the absence of a model, even when there, there wasn't really a very, there never was a clear model to begin with from native speakers. Um, in the absence of a model, um, how to measure pronunciation came down to, uh, it, it ultimately boiled down to listener effort by the part of the raters, uh, by the people who are scoring the test. And for the longest time, the TOEFL test, particularly I'll, I'll focus on the internet-based test, the TOEFL IBT, on scores, on, on tests like the TOEFL IBT, the way, that, the way that pronunciation or delivery as they describe it in the test, um, it relied on, in the absence of a model, the raters, the raters uh, measure of difficulty coping with the speakers speech. Um, and what they would use is they would use language like for a score based on zero to four, four being the highest, um, a three, for example, would have um, may require some listener effort at times, then a score of two requires significant listener effort, um, and a score of one considerable listener mm -hmm. effort. So significant listener effort, considerable listener effort. How are they actually supposed to, how, how are they actually supposed to do that? Now, of course, TOEFL, uh, the people at ETS would, would do things like, you know, they would do things like, uh, you know, through Raider training, 
um, try to do norming sessions. But the problem with the scale was that it was already it already presented uh, it already presented threats to the uh, reliability. You really can't try to justify you can't try to justify a scale even through through rater training mm. when you know before uh, reliability has been determined. So reliability has to be determined before you try to then train raters to to use to use a scale. Um, so there's always been a problem with it. There's always been a problem with it. This this listener effort. Yeah, I just while you were speaking, I pulled up the uh, publicly available speaking band descriptors for IELTS uh -huh. and. On their pronunciation scale, obviously this goes from uh, zero through nine, so it's a ten-point scale. Um, but the most common uh, scores in Japan are somewhere between a range of four and six, and so a, a person who gets a four, uh, the descriptor is uh, mispronunciations are frequent and cause some difficulty for the listener. But to get to a six, they have mispronunciation of individual words sounds uh, or words or sounds reduces clarity at times but can generally be understood throughout so you're right even in you know another big stakes high stakes testing band descriptors uh they are vague and one might think that's a, something you'd want to avoid that's right you it, it should be avoided um but i understand ets and i understand cambridge's situation that in the absence of a model, how do you measure it? You know, that's always been the big challenge. That's always been the big challenge. Well, then let's get into the specifics of, of your study, which uh, is the basis of this chapter. What question were you asking or what situation were you addressing? I was interested in the raiders and how their, their personal experiences, their personal linguistic experiences, how they impact scores. In the absence of a model, this idea of listener effort, um, how does the Raiders own experiences um, impact, particularly their familiarities with different accents? Um, at the time when I began doing this research or got the idea for this research, I was, mm. I was working at an international university in Japan mm. uh, that had students from all over the world. And for the first time I was encountering accents that I wasn't familiar with. Right. Consequently, I had also at this point spent more than 10 years in Japan. And I was encountering students in, my, in the same classes who were both Japanese and then from countries like Mongolia and Vietnam and Thailand and, and other countries. And particularly, I remember it was Mongolian English that really, um, I was really having a difficult time with. I had examples of their writing. Um, I had seen, you know, their, their, the outcome of their placement tests and things like reading comprehension. And, and I recognized that, okay, all of the students were basically, you know, at this, at about the same level, but I couldn't, I couldn't cope with with my Mongolian students' pronunciation, but with my Japanese students, I always, I always found their speech intelligible. I could distinguish the words that they were attempting to produce, and at first I started to wonder, well, 
you know, maybe maybe it's just the matter that that my Mongolian students uh, really have not had much experience with speaking English. Um, perhaps you know they've just got lots of pro pronunciation problems. But everything else about their language ability said no. They should both be at about the same place. And I was trying to think how can I how can I score these students who I'm familiar with, and score these students who I'm unfamiliar with their accent uh, equally and fairly. I couldn't come up with a way by myself, so I decided, well, let me let me see how do tests like the TOEFL IBT um, and IELTS how do they how do they cope with it because their raters must be facing the same problems. When I looked up how they do it, and I found you know these these rubrics that we've discussed, I realized, ah, uh, this is a problem. Of course, this is a problem. Um, there must be situations just like myself, uh, just like what I was having, where raiders were encountering familiar accents and unfamiliar accents. And if the scoring rubric um, relies on listener effort, then unfamiliar accents are going to be more difficult and require more listener effort. So those, those test takers' scores are going to be lower. I, I knew also that Raider training wasn't going to, it wasn't going to solve this problem because no matter the, no matter what the models were that they were given in their, in their norming sessions, you know, if they, if they were presented audio of a speaker and they were told, well, okay, this is what a, 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 a three sounds like, and this is what a two sounds like, those memories are going to be based on their own experience. You know, if they if they are listening to a familiar accent and they're being told, well, this is a three, and then they hear an unfamiliar accent and it seems about it seems about the same. Um, you know, it, it, it's going to it's going to it, it's just it's going to be different to each person. That that was my theory. That was what I that was what I predicted. So that's what I wanted to test. Um, well, just to give you some uh, information on that, the publicly available, the reason why I, I use the publicly available uh, IELTS descriptors is because I do work for IELTS and have done for the last six years. And you, your theory about the norming sessions is is correct. There are, you know, there are ways that uh, we can gain experience from of people with different levels of performance. But when you are living and working in Japan and only assessing and maybe only assessing people from Japan or 90% of them are, are going to be from Japan, whenever someone comes in who isn't, you run the risk of comparing them to the candidate you've just seen or the, the previous six candidates rather than on the person in front of you. So that is something that comes up a lot, making sure that each individual candidate is judged on uh, his or her uh, performance, not relative to anything else that you've seen, but it is it is trouble. Well, that's right, and and you you bring up an interesting you bring up an interesting point. Um, you know, one speaker's performance relative to another, and and trying to trying to not do that. Well, that's impossible, really. <laughs> it's it's really quite impossible when you're talking about performance aspects of speech, particularly pronunciation. We always have to measure things according to some 
you know, if there's no if there's no specific model that we can that we can measure it against, then we have to measure it against measure it against things that we've developed in our own memories. There's always the possibility of a third party image in your mind. And I always used to use the example when I was trying to explain when I taught a course on IELTS, when I was trying to explain to the students in the course, oftentimes you're going to be judged not on the person who's actually listening to you, but the image of how you're going to be, how proficient you're going to be at some point in the future. So imagine this student going to a US university, she has a question she'd like to ask her professor, and so goes to ask at the end of the, at the end of the lesson, how intelligible or how much of an effect of, is their pronunciation going to have on that unknown third party, you know, being able to complete that interaction without too much. It's a, it's an interesting mental construct that you have to try and apply to each candidate. Sure. Right. Yeah, of course, of course, tests like TOEFL IBT um, and IELTS, you know, TOEFL IBT is trying to determine whether or not a, a, a test taker could cope with the situation of, of study in generally a North American university in IELTS in the UK or, or, you know, each person's experience is going to be quite varied and um, it's very difficult to predict that. So what was the study that you did? How did you try and track down uh, whether this was having an effect? That focused on, that focused on uh, what was the pilot study uh, for the larger study, and it focused only on Japanese-accented English. And in that one, in that study, there were five. There were five speaking participants: three three men and two women, uh, all university students, all second-year university students, I believe it was. I recorded them reading prepared sentences. What I really wanted to do also is um, not only did I want to be able to observe how, how the rater participants would score them, but I wanted to be able to measure with some accuracy how the rater participants really did cope with the speakers, uh, with the speakers' accents, by having them complete uh, transcription tasks, I needed to know exactly what the what the participants were going to be saying, and so I provided them with sentences, um, and I provided them with sentences that were specifically crafted to to feature aspects of English pronunciation that are often problematic for. Japanese speakers of English. I, I let the, the rating participants listen, um, complete the transcription tasks, and score them using this what was the same, you know, the, the same language, the same language from the the TOEFL IBT um, pronunciation rating scale. So to give a to give a few examples uh, that are in the paper, you had an old woman was at home. He dropped his money. They broke all the eggs. The kitchen window was clean. And the girl plays with the baby. And these are features of English. For example, are these sentences that are likely to liaise or elide? Uh, or are these the specific sounds, the phonemes that are difficult in, in other language pronunciation? 
Yes, um, yes. And, and I wanted the sentences to not have uh, sort of predictable contexts. Um, that, was, that was something because we when we encounter either words or parts of words that, that we can't decipher, we use this sort of surrounding context of, uh, of, of that utterance to sort of fill in the gaps. And so, yeah, I needed to come up with just sort of simple, simple sentences. Um, and these, these, these sentences, yeah, either they were going to, either they were going to find the speech intelligible, or perhaps they, you know, the transcription task, that data, what it provided was, um, it provided me with the, the information of when they thought they heard something in particular, uh, they thought they heard something which actually wasn't, you know, what the speaker had intended for them to hear. Um, so you, you gathered data from... There were 87. 87, uh, and you note that most of them came from either the United Kingdom or the USA, but they were participants from uh, other countries uh, as as well. That's right. And then you had them rate how familiar they were with Japanese performance of English? They had to self, they had to self score themselves for their familiarity with Japanese English. Um, either no familiarity, uh, limited familiarity where they've heard Japanese speakers of English, but without any regularity or have not had any Japanese students during the last couple of years. Then for some familiarity, where they spent at least the last two years with students from Japan or have visited or regularly watched television or movies, and then very familiar, perhaps uh, a native speaker of Japanese or have lived in Japan for one or more years or have studied the Japanese language for one or more years. So they would score themselves based on that. And that would be, you know, that was how I was able to look at the different levels of familiarity. Um, and then look at how they scored the speakers. So before we get to the outcome of this study, it's probably a good idea to pause and talk specifically about your method of analysis, because it's not one that's commonly uh, known. It was. It took you a while to learn. I remember that story. So could you give uh, our listeners some idea of uh, what analytical tools you used and uh, how you taught yourself to use them? Okay, I used many faceted rash measurement. If you're not familiar with facets, the, the software is called facets um, and rash analyses. What it does is it allows you to, allows you to simultaneously measure uh, more than two or multiple facets at the same time. It's a very rich in detail uh, statistical analyses approach that you know, allows you to see the relationships, the relationships between various, uh, yeah, between various aspects um, all at the same time, and how they, how they, how they work with each other. Um, learning this was uh, this learning this was very difficult um, because I, as as you know, I was doing my I was doing my doctoral research while living here in Japan studying distance um, with uh, Glenn Fulcher, who I, who I wrote the article with. Um, in, he was in Leicester in the UK and I was here. 
Um, and sadly, he had he had no experience with Rash, and uh, and no one at no one at Leicester um, had any or that he could direct me to had any experience with Rash analyses. You know, he he said that that's a that's a fantastic idea. Yes, I think that's definitely the analyses that you should use for this. Um, sadly, I can't give you any help with it, um, so you're going to have to figure it out on your own. And that was quite that was quite an undertaking. It took me uh, the better part of two years um, to feel confident um, with what I was doing and that I was making the correct decisions. Um, this this exact almost this exact article um, had been submitted to the journal Language Testing. Um, two years before, uh, before the publication of, of, of this book, it had been rejected by one of the, and one of the evaluators had really, had really taken me to, um, taken me to task and really criticized my analyses and said, you know, this is, you know, what you did was just wrong. It was, it was not the right thing. Uh, but fortunately, you know, that, that was a very crushing, that was a crushing experience. Um, and, but, and it sent me, it sent me deep into really evaluating my analyses and thinking, thinking hard about how I did them and second guessing them. And then finally, I, uh, I found a, I found a rash uh, bulletin board on the internet. It turned out that Mike Lineker, who created the facets and WinStep software, um, that he runs the bulletin board. And uh, after corresponding with him a few times, I worked up the courage to, to sort of present what I had done and what, what were, you know, what were my objectives? And what, what was I really trying to do? And uh, do you think that I should have done something differently? And uh, he came back, no, that was, uh, that, that's what I would have done. You did, you did it exactly as I would. And uh, that was a great vindication. Of course, it was a big letdown that that was the that was the only reason that my that my work hadn't made it into the into the journal language testing. It ultimately worked out to be you know a big confidence builder. I developed a good relationship with with Mike Lineker, who I go ahead and give him a lot of credit again. Thank you, Mike, for <laughs> thank you, Mike, for for all of your tutelage and uh, and help. It's bringing up some really bad memories of me learning yeah. statistics because I did my master's degree distance as well. And so for the research methodologies, I was doing it very much on a, on a shoestring. All of my final projects were qualitative. Mm. So when it came to a PhD and my supervisor said, you're going to have to use statistics here. And I'll be like, I was like what do you mean? She's like, well, she was like, I, I don't know anything. Um, go down to pick up a copy of SPSS, which was very reasonably priced through the university, and then put your data, arrange your data, and, and, then, and then go and see the people. We had, a, we had what was called a MASH unit, a maths and statistics help. And so I spent about a month, my month back in England, putting my data together, trying to SPSS, as you say, you know, going online, watching YouTube videos and things like that. And then I take it in with all my data. And I'm like, okay, is this right? And the, the look on their face was kind of like, oh, good Lord, this is terrible. What have you been doing? And so I had to keep going back every day. They'd like teach me another little thing and I'd have to go away and learn that. And then the next day it was like, 
them getting me through my statistics was the way that they teach goldfish to move move through a maze. Like they just put a little bit of food here, a little bit of food there, and then I was able to get through. So uh, yeah, that feeling of um, finally getting it right, I can I can share with you. Oh oh yes yeah I I, I can't remember how many months, but it was it, it was it was definitely months um, before I had actually put my data into the you know in in sort of in the correct I, I had organized my data in the correct way so that the so that the facets software would recognize it it just mm, mm. error 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 and then i remember you know my elation when you know it didn't say error and and all of a sudden it started it started working and working and working and then spat out 16 pages of output and then i was like Okay, <laughs> so now I got it to work. Okay, of the 16 pages of data, uh, of, of output, um, where are the answers to my questions? <laughs> and then that went to, you know, the next sort of the next odyssey of um, being able to understand the output. Yeah, because at facets, it really does. It, it like I told you, it, 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 it provides you with such a, a, like a rich amount of detail but I, I won't say the first book, I won't say the first book that I was using at the beginning that um, really was quite difficult and, and, and caused me to spend you know, more than a year. Um, but it was the most popular book at the time uh, for applying the rash model. Um, but when Rita Green came out with her statistical analyses for language testers, if anyone, you know, if anyone is thinking about doing rash, um, her book used sort of normal, used, it used normal English and broke things down in such a way that it, it, it just cleared all of the clouds and all of the confusion and uh, was just a fantastic resource. Um, so yeah, uh, I gotta thank Rita. I've never met her before, but um, yeah, I remember how excited I was when I got this book, and I think I read it in about a day and a half, which never would ever happen with you know with any kind of statistical analysis textbook. More like you know you would need um, you need a lot of coffee to stay to stay to continue reading. But uh, her book was her book was great. Yeah, most statistical help books they're not exactly Clive Cussler, are they? <laughs> no, no. Um, not at all. <laughs> so going back to the paper, um, and one of the data points that you did manage to find in that 16 pages, uh, was that raters very familiar with Japanese English were 20% more successful than the raters with no familiarity. And then that the correlation of the two variables share 31% variance, which indicates a potentially large impact of familiarity on intelligibility. So let's kind of unpack that. What, what, does, what does that mean in terms of how would you apply that to explain it to, for example, ETS or uh, Cambridge, what that means for their raters in different contexts? Well, the more familiar you are with uh, a particular, either a speaker or a member of a group of speakers, in this case, an accent, uh, the the greater your ability is going to be to decode the message that they're you know that that is being sent to you 
um, you know, the, the process of listening and how listening, how listening functions as you receive it, your brain is immediately trying to figure out what is this? Who is this person? Um, where are they from? What is their age? What is their gender? Without being consciously aware of it, that's what's going on in your mind. And um, the easier it is to decode that, that information when, when you when you encounter a speaker or an accent um, and your brain recognizes, ah, this sounds like a Japanese speaker. Immediately, all of the tools that you've, all of the tools that you've developed through your experience with them, like for example, you know, the RL distinction, the adding of, you know, unnecessary vowel sounds at the end of uh, words that would end in a, in a consonant. Um, you, you learn how to decode it. The, the message to ETS was that, you know, this, this relying on, on listener effort, giving, you know, assigning, assigning test takers um, from various accents to, you know, randomly assign them to, to raters, um, it's going to create a problem of, you know, that, that they ultimately don't want to, to have happen, which is, that this test taker were they given were there were their samples given to a a raider who is familiar with their accent they would get a higher score than if they if they were given to a raider who were unfamiliar TOEFL IBT for for anyone who's not who's not familiar with it you know it's an internet based test um, the you know it, which is quite different than than the IELTS where you have the face to face uh, interview. ETS, you know, they do everything they can to try to, to try to make things fair by not revealing to the raider the gender, the age, uh, or where the speaker is from, in the hopes that they can't employ, you know, any sort of bias, you know, against against people. But actually, that I think that that's actually a bit of a. On the one hand, it. it can help with any kind of conscious bias, but on the other hand, it can it can create um, it can create problems. One of in this in this study in this book, um, it it wasn't mentioned in this article, but it did come out in the dissertation. One of the speakers, one of the boys, um, he had studied abroad in the Philippines. He had studied in the Philippines, I think, if I remember correctly, for a year or more. His accent was not typical Japanese, sort of Japanese English accent. Mm -hmm. um, his experience in the Philippines had definitely created a, a rather unique, a unique accent. And, and in the comments from the Raiders, um, because Raiders were allowed to provide comments at the end, he did, some of them did mention, you know, this speaker didn't sound like a Japanese speaker. What this told me too was that, you know, when they were employing in this study, in this study, the, the raiders knew they were going to be listening to Japanese speakers. And so they were employing, they, they were employing their sort of set of keys and codes for the familiar, for, for the raiders who were very familiar with Japanese. Um, they found themselves a bit no longer in their comfort zone. Their, their ability to decode this speaker's uh, speech was more difficult than than just a sort of standard Japanese English speaker. Yeah, so you know, to ETS, to to Cambridge, um, you know, this reliance on on 
such a scale uh, is just going to present problems. At this point, I would just like to apologize for people listening with their earphones in for Kevin's repeated hitting of the book. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it, is, it is a form of cognitive load management that you want to try and make sure that the person who's actually listening has as much help as possible, maybe not by giving too many details about location, but anything that, as you say, speeds up the ability of the person to process the language, thereby accurately judging the proficiency, would be helpful to any rater. I had a couple of follow-up questions from the previous interviews that we've had. So when I spoke to uh, Professor Nobuyuki Hino, uh, who is uh, an expert on Japanese English and has proposed various models of uh, Japanese English, we talked about language rating and we talked about the Aiken style of speaking rating, which is to have two people in the room watching the person, interviewing the person, and then afterwards independently score the proficiency and then put those scores together. Uh, we then spoke about the fact that much as we are doing now communicating online, the possibility of a third rater, non-Japanese, so who didn't have any familiarity with Japanese accented English, and that person would be in a neutral location, and then you'd be able to triangulate the proficiency, taking away that element of familiarity. How possible do you think that might be? Well, there's what's possible, and then there's what's feasible. And I think <laughs> that's what it ultimately comes down to. Like, for example, ETS, the way that they try, or in the past, how they tried to sort of create a multiple a multiple rater perspective is by not sending all of the samples from one speaker to only one rater they they mm -hmm. guaranteed that at least two mm -hmm. at least two different raters would be involved in the speaking uh, in in the scoring of speaking and while that you know while that might you know that that might provide a uh, better chance there's still the problem uh, that you know, that came out in my larger study is that all accents are not, don't share the same level of uh, sort of global familiarity. Mm, um, mm. And, you know, these tests, these tests are supposed to be, provide an equal opportunity, regardless of what the speaker's first language is. Right. Um, yeah, so the, the larger test, the larger, the larger study that I did it examined um, uh, Spanish English with various speakers from different Spanish countries, Arabic English with speakers from various Arabic speaking countries, and then Devehi English. And Devehi is the native language of the Maldives. Yeah, Spanish, you know, I, I, I chose Spanish because of its, it being extremely familiar due you know, around the world, particularly in English speaking countries where you're most likely to get the raters employed uh, working for IELTS or working, working for uh, ETS. Arabic being a, the next well-known and then Devehi being an, an extremely uh, unfamiliar accent. Um, in that one also, the raters, they didn't know what accents they were going to be hearing they had to self-score themselves, and I'm sorry, I don't have it right in front of me, but they had to self-score themselves on about, I, I do believe about 
12 or 15 different accents and mm. just mixed in there were those three. And uh, yeah, what ultimately came out of that one, yes, the most familiar accent was Spanish, the second most in uh, Arabic and, uh, and then Devehi. The same thing, the same thing occurred that familiarity, accent familiarity did significantly impact intelligibility and higher scores um, for all three, all three accents. Um, so in the example of like the TOEFL IBT, if they, if they guarantee at least two raters will be scoring it, if it's a Spanish speaker, um, there's, a, there's a very good chance that both raters will be familiar with, with mm, Spanish mm. English. However, Devehi English, if, they, if their lottery ticket should be a winner and they actually have one, <laughs> one of the raters who has had some familiarity or experience with Devehi English, um, the likelihood that the next one was going to have any familiarity would be, you know, incredibly low. Um, so, you know, that opened another sort of another can of worms. Um, not only does accent familiarity impact scores, um, but then, you know, all accents are not equally familiar um, in the wider sense. I know that IELTS doesn't have a kind of familiarity profile of their raters. I've never been asked about my familiarity with, with those. Does uh, ETS, and if they do, uh, do they apply it to keep familiarity apart or put familiarity, familiar, familiar candidates in front of those raters, or do they not consider it? Well, that's that's an interesting question because that that came up in, you know, sort of in the end of my in the end of my dissertation, sort of in, in the suggestions for uh, you know, suggestions how this problem could be could be dealt with, I cannot say what they're doing now. I can say that at the time they weren't that that there was no data collected on their on their raters concerning how familiar they were with with any accents. What was suggested by me how it could be. You know how it could be dealt with. Um, see, familiarity, like like the like the scale that I included in the study, um, sort of no familiarity, no familiarity, limited familiarity, uh, you know, uh, up to very familiar. Once you are exposed to an accent, so if you're at no familiarity, once you're exposed to it for the first time, then you can't stay at that at that level. The levels fluctuate. Levels mm. fluctuate and change. Um, how should people like ETS and uh, Cambridge deal with it? Ultimately, I think that the best solution is matching with raters who are very familiar or, or mm. at least have, uh, at least have a, a good measure of familiarity. Because if, if, you tried, if you tried to do it the other way, if you tried to match with people who are unfamiliar, through the through the through the job of, of rating people, they are immediately going to be disqualifying themselves. Um, also, I think that there's more of an obligation by the testing industry to to give test takers the best possible score that they could receive, mm. rather than the lowest score that they could receive. Mm. Uh, that that's the only thing that sort of really really seems fair.
of course, this, you know, like your question, you know, how, how about if, if, if scores were triangulated with uh, various raters, you know, that, that ultimately costs more money. Uh, exactly. Yes. And tests are already, these tests are already quite expensive, especially, Very. yeah, I mean, if you, especially if you consider um, students in, you know, developing nations and third world nations, um, the amount of money that it costs, you know, when, when you when you consider, you know, if they have limited resources and then you know, a test like uh, the total IBT, perhaps about 100 US dollars, and same with, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not entirely sure right now how expensive IELTS is, but it's it's a considerable cost. I think it's, it's, a, it's at least $300 for the full for the full suite of tests. Oh, right. Wait, yeah. what, how much? 300. 300, yeah, yes. that's, um, that's really quite a lot. I ultimately think that, that test, these test industries, you know, they should be able to provide the best possible score um, that a test taker could get on their test. It's not a thought unique to me, but when you do have something that is that expensive, it becomes a gatekeeping mechanism and exclude people from the possibility of uh, of studying abroad studying in places where uh, where they would like to where english is involved so it's something that if something can be done to bring the cost down if these tests can be delivered online more cheaply i think that that is certainly something that we uh, we should be looking into um thank you very much for uh, giving me the the solutions a couple of solutions a couple of ideas that was going to be the next thing that i asked you so We've talked a little bit about your experiences as an overseas student uh, at Leicester University. And I know there are some people listening who might be considering taking higher education courses uh, and are kind of looking at various options. I was uh, speaking with uh, an instructor yesterday, uh, Fern Sakamoto, who was uh, was Australian and chose Australia because of the financial reasons and you know the assistance that you can get from there so why did you an American I assume by your accent uh, <laughs> why did you choose Leicester oh well, that's an interesting question um, I didn't necessarily choose Leicester um, I chose I think this is an, I think this is a really important point when doing uh, when deciding to do a, a PhD when deciding to do a doctorate. Um, I chose Glenn Fulcher. Um, I chose Glenn Fulcher and uh, because when I was, I think, I, I can't remember, I was writing, I was writing a proposal, you know, try, trying to get my, get my thoughts together what would be, you know, to write a, a research proposal for a PhD um, to use to apply to universities. And what I found myself when I was thinking about my, my topic, um, the name that just kept coming up was, I because I was originally thinking Charles Alderson, who, who is, uh, you know, he's sort of, he's retired now, but he's sort of the, the, the father of of language testing. And I had studied with uh, Tim McNamara. I had gone to University of Melbourne for my master's and lived in Australia. I chose Melbourne, like you said, you have a friend who, uh, you know, who chose Australia for financial reasons. Australia was a great choice for me. I didn't know anything about the department. 
um, I, I, I was very lucky because I got to study with one of the, another of the, the greats in the world of language testing with Tim McNamara. But when I started writing the proposal for this study, the name that kept coming up was Glenn Fulcher, 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 Fulcher. And I had, I, I had friends who I had worked with who, who had been doing their PhDs and um, they had chosen the university were, you know, had had the difficulty of the university didn't have anyone really being an expert in what they were trying to do. It, the, the experience was coming up short with being able to get the kind of information that they wanted. And so I was like, well, I think, I think I should go with find the person who I really want to be able to study with. And then wherever they are, that's where I'll go. I knew I wanted to go to the UK, so I had sort of limited myself to UK to, to people working in the UK. Um, I chose the UK because I had done Australia before and the United States too expensive. Mm. Uh, but Glenn, yeah, I chose Leicester because of Glenn. Um, and then when when I when I got accepted and I asked him, you know, are you can you guarantee to me that you're going to be here until I graduate? <laughs> and he said, well, well, I can I can only tell you I'm I'm not planning on leaving. Um, it was it was a really good decision. Well, to clarify, as someone who did choose the university first and then was then was assigned someone who wasn't an expert in my area, I must make it very clear, my experience did not, as you say, come up short. Uh, I would like at some point in the future to invite my supervisor on to uh, speak about the experience of, uh, of advising students and particularly ones that you might not be an expert in their area. Uh, so I guess my final question is, uh, a former resident of the UK and someone who comes from uh, near Leicester. How was your experience? Oh, I loved it. Um, right. I loved everything about, about Leicester. I wish that I could have, uh, I wish that I could have spent more time on campus. I went every year. I went every year, generally for two or three weeks, mm -hmm. um, but I loved, uh, I really loved the library. I loved the, the campus. Um, they, the rest of the faculty in the education and the language and applied linguistics, um, I got to meet several of them. And, mm. um, and I had a secondary supervisor, uh, Pamela Ravel, um, who is an expert in, in pronunciation herself. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, really, it was a really great experience. Um, Thank you very much for sharing your experiences with us today. Uh, the paper that we've been discussing is Pronunciation and Intelligibility in Assessing Spoken Fluency. Thank you very much for your time today, Dr. Brown, and I wish you all the best with your future studies. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was a great time. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.